the Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here with you, along with Stephanie Burke and the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Good evening. How are you guys? I'm good. How are you? I'm going to turn your mic on, Matt. There we go. Yeah. I had trouble with that this morning as well. It's so. very confusing. Yeah. I don't know why. It's so confusing, but I, I just put them all up. I just put them all up. That's all I do. I found that when I do that, though, like Mo- Matt Moniz, the, the science advisor of the program, is not here. He's under the weather. But I find that when I do that, when I put all the mics up, I pick up Moniz's heavy breathing even more, <laughs> and it scares it scares the children. Yeah, they <laughs> think it's an obscene phone call. It could be. Do they still do those? Do they still have obscene phone calls? <laughs> uh, I, I think it's know. obscene text messages. I think that's what it is now. It's just sexy. Like, it's star, heavy breathing star. <laughs> Hashtag. <sighs> Hashtag creepo. Yes. Well, welcome to the program. This is where we talk about the paranormal each and every Saturday night. And we're kind of in a run where we're going to be here for most of the time, I, I think, more or less. Uh, except next us. week. Hmm? Don't jinx us. Right, exactly. Next week we won't be here because there's a Legend Trips event, but we are going to try and work on putting together a pre-recorded episode uh, before that, so hopefully that can air in our place next Saturday night. So even though it'll sound like we, we're live, we won't be. We'll be at Edaville, USA for our Legend Trips event there. There are still a few tickets remaining for that. I think we're down to seven tickets. So if you and your paranormal group are thinking about going, you know, you might want to jump on that now before there's not enough tickets for everyone. Or maybe you have a large family, a lot of friends. It's going to be a good time, something you don't want to miss. It's, we're going to be the first people to ever investigate Edaville. Nobody has ever conducted a paranormal investigation there. So if you want to be on virgin ground, this is your chance. Even if you've never been to Edaville, you've never heard of it, you don't know what we're talking about, and I don't know how you can be within the sound of my voice, well, I guess podcasts and streaming worldwide will uh, cause that to happen. But if you're in the local audience, you're quite familiar with Edaville. Uh, but uh, if you've never heard of it, it's worth coming to check out anyway just for the stories. You can check it all out at legendtrips.com. We have all the information there, the backstory of the hauntings there, uh, what we're going to be doing next Saturday night. And it's going to be very unique. Not often do you get to investigate a haunted theme park. No, and it's really big, so there's plenty of room for plenty of people. Definitely, definitely. And, and the best part about it, in terms of space-wise, is we have the run of the entire park. So it's not like some of these other places where we go and, you know, there'll be a vast territory and we're only allowed to stay within a certain area. We're going to basically take over the whole place. We're going to have the entire museum building. We're going to have the, what's known as the suicide house. We'll have the midway and we'll have all the grounds surrounding Edaville as well. So you'll get to go down the tracks and into the bogs. You'll get to go into Dino Land. I was going to ask about the dinosaurs. I think that they leave that giant Jurassic Park type gate open. Mm-hmm. So we'll be able to go in there. The, I hope that the dinosaurs would be off. Can you imagine if they're on? That will freak everybody out. That is hilarious. But uh, <laughs> it, would, it would be cool to be in there and like uh, have the dinosaurs going off in the dark. I'd like to see what that's like, but I think it would kind of ruin the, the investigation. It might, although it could be paranormal, too. They could go on by themselves. Maybe. Uh, the, uh, w- the one thing that I thought was very interesting is they have misting units there, you know, little like sprinklers that pop up. Yeah, kind of like a fog machine, but it's like a little sprinkler head that pops up that mists to create the atmosphere that you're going into, like, you know, the Jurassic period. So it's uh, actually a Triassic period. Well, whatever. Yeah. So the uh, I was thinking, like, all that mist and everything, if we were actually investigating there, that would be a pretty cool effect it to would. have going on because you can utilize that. 
you know, and I've seen a lot of times now with people uh, utilizing that mist, especially when they're using laser grids and and uh, different other devices. But you know, we're not going to make them turn on the dinosaurs for our amusement. However, we will have uh, details coming up this week if you would like to get into the park for a cheaper rate during the course of the day and go and ride some of the rides and have fun before you come and investigate. You cannot spend enough time in Edaville. Trust me on that. So uh, it's been kind of a Interesting week this week. There's been a lot of things going on, and uh, we'll we'll talk about some of the weirder stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, before we get into that, I want to mention that uh, we lost someone in the paranormal field this week who was very influential as much as he tried to fight it, and that would be Frank Sumption, the creator, the inventor of Frank's Box. He revolutionized uh, ITC communication and helped bring it into the home and, and the hands of the average investigator. Uh, no more did you have to have the big fancy ITC equipment that we used to see back in the 70s and 80s. Frank was able to modify radios and turn them into devices that we believe can be used for spirit communication. Except Frank. He never really believed in that aspect of it. He, he did for a while. Uh, and he had a very personal connection, which is how he got involved in creating these boxes. Uh, but after a while, uh, he started making communication with extraterrestrial entities. Wow. They saw him not as himself, but they saw him as their purple princess, a, a purple, big, busted female. Uh, so that was kind of where his research went mm-hmm. uh, once that started happening. He was getting a lot of... Uh, doomsday predictions from the ETs, and and that's the kind of your stuff station the for box. the South Coast. Thanks, Frank. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that was that was probably him. Uh, but anyway, so he created these boxes, and people would ask him for them, mm-hmm. and he would make them for them and give them to them for nothing because he usually just used spare parts, whatever he could find uh, to to create the the devices, but. He would send them off to people at no charge or very little charge. There's dozens of them floating around out there. People took them, put them on eBay, and sold them for thousands of dollars because they were original Frank's boxes made by Frank Sumption himself. So a lot of people profited uh, from Frank's technology, and he never did. Uh, He refused to profit off it, even when people told him that he could. So what we're asking right now is uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Tim Woolworth, who is very close to Frank. He has started a GoFundMe account uh, that is helping to benefit the fun- uh, the funeral expenses for Frank Sumption. So if you go to GoFundMe.com slash D9T33S, D9T33S, uh, you will get to the direct page to make a donation to the Frank Sumption Funeral Expense Fund. As of right now, they have $3,795 out of the $10,000 that they're trying to get. And uh, there are some, some prizes that are being given away for those who do donate. If you donate a certain amount, it puts you in a certain category for a prize. So if you donate $25, you're in the running for uh, certain ITC devices like the RS-12587, the RS-12588. These are Radio Shack. You know, these are the Shack hacks that are some of the uh, early ones. You can also win a, a PSB-7, you know, some of the device like what we use. I use a mm-hmm. SB-7 at Legend Trips events. You know, some of these other donations, uh, these other devices. I mean, for a $35 donation, you can get a 30-minute reading from Chip Coffee, a ghost box reading from Chris Moon, an individual focus session from Steve Huff, an individual focus session from Tim Woolworth, an individual focus session and water ITC session from Michael Hobart Edwards. Uh, again, more... Uh, 
just more of these uh, individual focus sessions. Also, uh, t- tickets to the Stanley Hotel event with Strange Escapes, Amy Bruni's new venture, uh, a Fort Mifflin overnight with Pups, and a special Frank Sumption package. So if you donate $35 or more, you'll be in the running to win one of those prizes. If you donate $50 or more, you can win an Andy's box, a Steve's box. Uh, but if you donate $65 or more, you are in the running for a one-of-a-kind Frank's box. Frank's box number 71, made by Frank Sumption himself, uh, so that you could actually win that. Or you can go to eBay. And you can look up Frank's box number 94. They're conducting an eBay auction there uh, as a way to try to raise money for the funeral expenses with a $500 minimum reserve price, which I'm sure has been met by now. Uh, And also, if you want to just make a regular donation, uh, then you can make a deposit. Yeah, I'm sorry. You can uh, send a check or money order at any Chase Bank to account number 301102. 80321 make it out to Norm Assumption or Chad Assumption in memory of the Frank Assumption in the memory in the memo line so I put Frank Assumption Memorial Fund so your chance to help the assumptions with some of these final expenses for Frank uh, and at the same time you can win some some pretty interesting devices that will help you further your own uh, experiments in spirit communication so hopefully people go out there and make a donation if you've ever used a Frank's box a shack hack uh, uh, Steve's box and Andy's box, any of these devices, even some of the apps, some of the Bill Chappell's uh, hardware, some of Gary Galka's hardware. If you've used any of these, it all relates back to Frank Sumption and his work. Donate a dollar, five, twenty, whatever you can spare to help the family with these final expenses. Frank was uh, not a man of means by any stretch of the imagination, uh, and he would always talk about that, how others were getting rich off his work while he was poor, but he knew that it was the wrong thing to do to try to profit off of it, so uh, definitely, and I'm sorry that we never got him on the show. I kept getting closer and closer as the years went on. I kept, you know, I'd get him right on the verge of saying yes and agreeing to come on. One night he was coming on Mm -hmm. and he backed down about five minutes before he was supposed to call in. And uh, it's just it was it was a battle all the time to try to get him to to come out publicly. He would comment on Facebook. He would engage with anybody on Facebook, but uh, and especially in his Yahoo group when he had that up and running, he was uh, very much in communication with folks. But he just he shied away from it because he he thought that we were all stupid. He thought we were all talking <laughs> talking to the wrong um, sources. So there you have it. So. Uh, Hopefully, you know, now that Frank's on the other side, he's got all the answers. And the one thing that I saw that irked me this week, everybody that heard about this is posting online about how, well, I bet you he comes through on the box for me tonight. And people were literally trying to have box sessions Mm. and communicating with Frank Sumption. Frank swore that if he ever passed on, or when he passed on, he would never communicate with anybody through the boxes. He said that numerous times. Mm -hmm. Now, all right, maybe he gets some divine knowledge when he actually does pass and changes his mind, but I'm going to take the man at his word, and I'm not going to try to conjure up um, his spirit and communicate with him. My um, experience, they do tend to change their mind when they're over there because mm-hmm. we don't hold on to anything that we believe in here. Um, however, 
you can't just communicate with anyone. I I know people try to communicate with famous people, things like that. The way that it works is it has to be someone that's pretty much directly connected to you or directly connected to the space that you're in if they are still residing in that space. So you can't just call out anyone. See, it's I would, impossible. I would think that the proper procedure to, to follow would be if someone told you that in, in life, they told you that, uh, you know, I don't have any communication mm-hmm. Uh, any desire for communication after I die, then I would respect that enough to not try to call them forth. I think. But maybe they, maybe they change their mind and they ca- t- talk to me the next time I'm using the box. Right. But I would rather leave that ball in their court than to try to force the issue. I agree with that. Absolutely. Now, what do you think? And I'll just ask you this really quickly and then we'll... we'll mm-hmm lighten things up a little bit with the week and weird and then we'll get really serious with a deadly haunting with tonight's guest deborah moffett but what, what did you think of all these people who were communicating with robin williams uh, after he committed suicide there's all these people who are like oh my god i had my frank's box on my shack hack i was using the echo box whatever it might have been mm-hmm. and and robin williams came through and talked to me well is that possible no okay no. why why is that Unless you're a direct family member or you have a connection with him, why in the world would he choose you to come through to? Um, First of all, when you do pass, you kind of go through a whole transition period, I guess you could call it, Mm -hmm. um, where you are getting used to your new energy body as opposed to your physical body. So um, I usually tell people... Regular clients that, you know, they just lost someone 24 hours ago. Okay, you know, they're not really going to be able to communicate. They have to gain energy, things like that. So um, it actually takes spirits a little while to kind of get used to things and gain enough energy to come back and communicate properly. Um, So it wouldn't be right away. This is way too soon, first of all. Mm -hmm. And second of all, um, like I said, I if that were the case, I'd have celebrities and you know, my house all the time trying to communicate with me because I'm a medium and I'm like the flashlight in the dark. So it doesn't work like that. You can't just call out anyone. I've had people tell me, oh, you know, Michael Jackson died. Mm -hmm. I communicated with him. No, you did not. Oh, he came to me in my bedroom. No, he did not. Um, They look for the literal medium. If somebody wants to come back and and communicate, they're going to communicate with their loved ones first. They're going to look for someone that's closest to their loved ones or their actual loved ones. They're not going to just come out to anybody and and try it's pointless i I would think that uh if you are robin williams and i'm just Mm -hmm. using him as an example uh but if you are him you know you have a lot of questions that your own family will have uh and and maybe maybe you'd want to reach out to someone who's not connected to you just as a way to kind of avoid facing those questions Is, is that a possibility no okay um like i said we leave all of those feelings here it's, okay. it's not the same when we pass. We don't have those human emotions anymore. So he wouldn't have any guilt about what he did about leaving his family behind? The only thing or... that he, that like, in his situation where his passing was kind of tragic in, in our sense, um, he's going to kind of deal a little bit with, on the other side at least, you know, why things went the way they did. You know, a little bit longer of a transition period. Um but we're all meant to go the way that we're meant to go. There's no changing that. So if that that's how his story is written, it is how it is. But, of course, we're going to be left with questions. His family is going to be devastated. Or, for all we know, his family knows everything, and they're just not releasing it to the media. Um, but he's not going to just go to you or I and say, hey... I want to tell you my life story. You'll never be able to talk to my family, but I want to tell you specifically. 
It wouldn't make sense. There is one celebrity that when he passes, mm-hmm. I think will con- will contact other people besides his own family. Okay. And uh, and that's Bill Murray. Okay. Because uh, when he passes, he'll he'll come through and he'll talk to everybody over Shack Hacks and Frank's Bucks and what have you and every other medium and he'll mm-hmm. just end the conversation with, and no one will ever believe you, just like he does in real life now. <laughs> So that's that's quite a possibility. And, and sorry, so we have a few minutes here. Uh, maybe we can run a, a quick edition here of the Week in Weird to lighten things up. And as right. I said, then we're going to get really scary uh, for the remainder of the night. You know, not too often do we handle cases and, and stories here on Spooky South Coast that we, uh, you know, that when we leave, we leave it all behind us. We're able to kind of go home. Uh, decompress from the show, not think about the topics that we talked about, and and get a good night's sleep. Tonight we're going to have a problem with that. Tonight we're going to have a little bit of trouble sleeping when we hear the story of Deborah Moffat and the deadly haunting that she had to endure for six years, having to live daily with a demon in her house. So we'll talk about that coming up. Thanks, (laughs) Tim. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of problems tonight. Uh, Sorry, Brendan. I apologize. When, when, when the lights are on at 3 a.m., you'll know why. Uh, but before we do that, we'll have a little bit of fun here, and we'll get a little weird. Hold on, let's see if I can do this. Oh, man, no. Well, I got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> The Week in Weird. All right, first up we have woman allegedly beats man who farted in her face. What? A South Carolina woman was arrested Monday after allegedly hitting a man she said passed gas in her face. Jessica Kearney, 33, told police that 64-year-old Daryl McKnight came home drunk at about 7.45 p.m. and farted on her visage. While he was while she was lying on the couch, according to documents obtained by the smoking gun, furious about the blast, Kearney left the house, but says McKnight followed her outside. An argument ensued that allegedly resulted in McKnight approaching her in a threatening manner, and Kearney allegedly punching McKnight in the face three times. McKnight was taken to a hospital for a swollen eye, while Kearney was not injured. Both people were charged with disorderly conduct fighting. I Just can't. creepy little kid voices in the background, that's all. Yeah, I was going to wonder what that was. That is a commercial phone. Oh, okay, now. good. So you're already scaring me. <laughs> Next up we have an epic Lego shipwreck has been washing thousands of Legos onto beaches. BBC News recently reported on a r- pretty rad story out of Cornwall, UK. Way back in 1997, a shipping container con- carrying 4.8 million Lego pieces fell into the sea roughly 20 miles from Land's End. 17 years later, the tide is still washing loads of Lego onto beaches around Cornwall. They have also been uh, discoveries of the little tiny bricks in Ireland and Wales. The container ship carrying the Lego, the Tokyo Express, was hit by a wave described by its captain as a once-in-a-hundred-year phenomenon, tilting the ship 60 degrees one way, then 40 degrees back. Ironically, many of the Lego pieces were nautical-themed from the AquaZone line. Which is kind of funny. (laughs) For years, children and adults have been combing the Cornwall coasts in search of the little plastic bricks. Local 
uh, Tracy Williams is her name. She actually started a Facebook page. It's called Lego Lego Lost at Sea. And she puts all of her findings up on there. And I guess everybody else goes to it and puts their findings as well. The shipwreck is actually providing a lot of insight into the movement of ocean currents and the tides. And there's even speculation as to whether or not they've reached the coast of Australia. Wow. that's And, you know, usually I find missing Legos, like, in the couch cushions. Right, or your feet. Yeah, usually find that's, them. That's, that's how I think they were probably actually discovered, if somebody stepped on them on the beach. It could be. There's actually pictures, so if anybody wants to look it up online, it shows, you know, all kinds of different rocks and sea glass and tiny little Legos everywhere. I saw some photos of it. It's, it's pretty ridiculous. And I, I'm a little upset that nobody's decided to build, like, a big castle with it right there on the beach. I, I think I would be interested in going and looking for Legos because it's so strange. I mean, you can never have too many either. No, not at all. I wonder if they're worth anything. Probably not. Hmm. And last but not least, and I think the weirdest of this week, is a Croatian nurse dubbed the penis collector by local media has been arrested for allegedly stealing male genitals from a hospital morgue. Hmm. I like how these stories that's, that's, always that's catch both of your cocky, attention. Isn't it? He's like, I'm not paying attention, <laughs> I'm working over here, her you know, penis? What? Right. <laughs> In Serbia reports, a 52-year-old man was arrested in Slavonsky Broad on suspicion of possessing human body organs. Police say that they found found jars of human penises soaking in formaldehyde in his apartment. Cops suspect the man stole the penises from bodies in the morgue of the hospital where he worked. Police say that the suspect has no criminal record and described him as a family man. He has been released from custody pending trial for disturbing the deceased. If convicted, he could end up facing two years in jail. They were in jars? They were in jars in his apartment. I guess some people really do like cucumber pickles. <laughs> Maybe. You know, uh, I've heard of people collecting some pretty weird things. Yeah. But uh, the first question that I have is... I mean, how can I put this in a way that's not completely crass, but, uh, you know, this guy must not be having too much of his own personal collection, if you get what I'm saying, to want to go and collect other people's. Psychologically, what makes you do that? There's something wrong there. Whose penis did you bring me? Abby someone. (laughs) The Abby normal. Abby normal. Yes, that's it. (laughs) All right. Well, uh... I, I, I guess I'm actually speechless for once. I don't have anywhere to go with that. Well, I tried to tone it down with the Legos first before I threw that one at you. No, I'll always save the penis for last. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, 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 that's There's an entire film industry that's been built on that principle. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back on the other side, we'll be joined by tonight's guest, Deborah Moffat, to talk about the new book, A Deadly Haunting, and the case that she survived. Six long years of having to deal with a demonic entity. You will not believe some of these stories. Uh, You might want to turn the lights on and lock the door before you hear this. It's going to be a spooky night here on Spooky South Coast. Back with more in just a moment.
Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and Stephanie Burke. And joining us on the line right now, we have our guest for this evening, Deborah Moffat. She lived through six harrowing years of having a, a demon in her life every day, pretty much. And some of the stories, uh, some of the incidents that happened to her and her family over that time, if you don't believe in the existence of demons or, or at least some sort of negative pure evil uh, than you will after hearing her story. The name of the book is A Deadly Haunting, and uh, it is written by Joey Albrecht, but uh, it is the story of the Moffat family. And joining us on the line right now, we have Deborah Moffat. Good evening. How are you, Deborah? I'm fine, and thank you for having me on. Fine. Sorry for making you wait all that time. We had a little bit of a technical issue here. Oh, it, that's all right. As soon as I dropped the D word, <laughs> <laughs> things started to go a little haywire, but uh, we're used to it here. So this is a story that you have uh, essentially uh, kept to yourself and within your family and, and just a small circle of people for the last 25 years, and uh, and now you're finally able to tell it. What's it like to, to sit on this story and to have to keep it inside of you for all that time and to finally be able to let it out? Well, at the beginning, it was you know 25 years ago when everything stopped. Not talking about it was good because it was like, we didn't want to bring it back. We were we just all we were afraid that if we started talking about it, we might draw it back. So keeping quiet about it at the beginning was like a safety technique. Mm-hmm. But as the years came, kept going by and by, it was like it was always on the in the back of my mind what had happened. I never I never had any ans- real answers what it was, what it, you know why it was he really here. So it was like bottled up inside. So actually, when I actually got to tell the story, it felt great. It felt really good. Was there concern on your part, though, that when you did start telling the story, when you started sharing it with Joey and, and working on the book together, did it concern you at all that, just as you said, talking about it might bring him back? You know, it did. Uh, when I first thought about it, I, I kept it to myself. Up until the time my husband died, and that was two years ago, even my children, who were tiny at the time this was going on, had no idea that this happened. We never even told the children about it. So... I When I found the pictures, my husband had pictures that he had put away in the closet, and I didn't even know he had them until he passed over and I was cleaning the closet. And I saw all these pictures and the negatives of things that had happened 25 years ago, and it just brought back so many memories. And it just I had this desire just to tell people. You know, it was such an amazing story. I just wanted to grab people and say, listen to this, listen what happened. So... I thought about it before I even told my children, and yes, I did worry at the beginning. I thought, now, is anything going to start up? But it had been 25 years, and absolutely nothing has happened. And I, I really believe that it's not going to start up again. I believe that it's gone. Well, it's very interesting the way that this whole story comes about because at the beginning of the book, uh, you share kind of the origin story of how the entire haunting started off. But it's it, it turns out that you know at, through the course of these years, uh, six years of dealing with this uh, this creature that you call Mister Entity in the book, uh, when when you start to get deeper into the story, you realize that your family was a lot more connected into this uh, than you might have originally thought. Was there any sign, any type of activity, even before this started, that maybe the the Moffat family or yourself were a little bit more attuned to the uh, to the unknown? Now, I can only tell you when I met my in-laws and my husband, they told me a little bit about what had happened in 1984 when this lady, the Guatemalan housekeeper, was there. Mm-hmm. And... 
before that, they told me absolutely nothing. They never had anything to do with the paranormal. My my mother-in-law was absolutely petrified of anything paranormal. And myself, I enjoyed it as an entertainment form, but never as something that I thought would ever happen to me. Did you did you believe in it, or did you just like these stories? I was stories? open-minded. I mean, I didn't believe, but I did not believe. I was one of these people that I have to see it to believe it. And believe me, I saw it. So... I know it is real. Well, so it started for them uh, before yourself and, and Bill got married. Uh, and, right. and kind of just take people uh, back to those early days of 1984 and, and how this whole thing kicked off, at least in oh. the early stages of how you thought that it did. All right. They think it started in 1984. Um, my mother-in-law's mother was dying, and she had to have a housekeeper. Now, there were three houses in a row. My mother-in-law lived in the middle house. My, her mother lived on the left side, right side of her, and then my husband owned the house on the left side that he had inherited, uh, but he lived with them in the middle house. Um, they hired a housekeeper from Guatemala. Now, this is only speculation about how this started because uh, the investigators took information that my mother-in-law had, what she found, and they attributed to what that maybe this opened some type of a portal. Um, when the grandmother died... The housekeeper before that was uh, very upset because she didn't want her to die because she'd lose her job and she'd have to go back to Guatemala. So when she did die, uh, my mother-in-law found in the house after she left remnants of uh, candles and blood and feathers, broken rosary beads. And um, the lady, the last night before she left, came down to my mother-in-law's house screaming, telling her she was sorry, don't go in that house, it was evil. And within an hour, someone picked her up and left, and they never heard from her again. Well, then, like I said, my mother-in-law went and cleaned the house and found all these kinds of uh, paraphernalia around the house. Um, They rented that house out. At the time, it was rented out to an older gentleman. He, My husband used to tell me that he never really came out and said, oh, something bad's happening in this house. He just made kind of reference to it. He wanted to know if anyone died in the house. Um, he told my husband that he was speaking to someone on a Ouija board. So it was nothing, you know, right in your face, but it was more uh, like people would say things were happening and you, you didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. So that's we think that's how it started. From what I understand, I don't think the lady did anything to hurt anybody. I think she practiced this hoping to keep the, the grandmother alive so she wouldn't lose her job. But it seems like she opened some type of door and something came through. And if you're someone who is attempting one of those rituals and you don't exactly know what you're doing and you don't do it correctly, or maybe, you know, as we find out later on in the story, maybe something was lurking around the family and just waiting for its chance, waiting for its opening to come through. Right. So now this situation happens where, you know, whatever the intent and whatever the, the way that it starts to come through, uh, something happens. There's There's some sort of entity now that is made itself known in that house. How long was it before they started to realize that it it wasn't confined to just that particular structure? Uh, Well, my husband and I, after we were married in the beginning of 87, uh, we moved in with his mother and father. Uh, They were alone. My husband had a heart condition, so we felt, you know, we felt very good together, and I really loved his mother very much. Um, So we lived together in the middle house. My husband and I rented out his house to a gentleman. Now, my husband was a big sports collector of memorabilia, and he kept one of the rooms in his house locked with all kinds of very valuable sports 
memorabilia. Uh, the gentleman had run of the house and he had a bedroom there, but we had the option to come down anytime we want to check on everything. Uh, the first time I can actually say that I experienced anything and saw it for myself, we went down to the house to check on his uh, sports things, and we unlocked the door and we went into the, the the room, and on the floor of the room, something or someone with the time we thought it was someone had taken bobbleheads off the walls and put them on the floor in the shape of a triangle. Now, of course, when you see something like that, you automatically think the tenant's doing it. So that's what we we, we surmised that someone physically had come in and take it and done this. Uh, we confronted the tenant. He said, that door's locked. I don't even go in it. I have no interest in it. Uh, we noticed then, like, well, maybe two or three weeks later, my, my mother-in-law in her bedroom, she had a um, shelf next to her bed, and she was very religious. And she kept religious statues on this on this uh, table. And we started getting items that didn't belong to us. All of a sudden, they would just she'd go to bed at night, and next to her on this table would be items that didn't belong to us. There are ports. So we we knew that these the ports South were coming Coast. from the house next door that we were running to the gentleman. Uh, the next thing we knew, he was saying to us, I think I have to leave. He never came out and said, you know, I'm, this is happening or this is happening. He just, we got the feeling that he was frightened, and one weekend he just left. Hmm. So the next thing that happened was we went down to clean. Uh, my husband was in one room. I was in the living room. And on the top, there was a long shelf on the very top near the ceiling that had all kinds of knickknacks on it. And I remember looking at it and thinking that it had to be dusted. And then I turned around just for a second and looked back, and every single statue on that on that shelf was turned backwards. And I, I, I didn't actually see them turn, but it happened like in a blink of an eye, they were backwards. And when I told my husband about it, he, of course, you know, said they were probably like that to begin with. You didn't notice, but they weren't. And then it, it progressed from there in that house. But at that time, there was nothing threatening about it. It just seems like you know. It seems like a run-of-the-mill haunting, which is funny to say when you're not used to experiencing one. But it didn't seem like it was anything negative, anything oppressive. No, it was more like, "Look what I can do," and it was like it would respond to you. I mean, my husband's uncle had died in that house, so the first thing they speculated was, "Oh, it's maybe it's his spirit." Mm -hmm. And you'd go into the house, and you'd say, "I'd say, if someone's here, do something." And you'd walk into one room. When you went back into the room you were just in, there'd be a piece of furniture from one room apported into the other room. Uh, it, it's one thing. If you look at a, I hate, again, I hate to use the expression, but a run-of-the-mill haunting, you know, apportation will happen from time to time, but it's small things. It's keys. You know, it's a pen. It's it's a brooch, something small. It's very rare to see something with the power uh, to be able to move an entire room's worth of furniture. Was this? It, it even moved. There was a statue in the backyard in the in the patio, a big cement statue. One time we were coming into the house, we unlocked the front door, and sitting right in the hallway looking at us was the statue that was supposed to be out in the patio. And this was heavy. So it had the power to, and it was a very powerful thing. But like I said at this time, there was nothing threatening. It wasn't doing anything nasty or mean. Now, during this time, we had all, before this even started, we had decided that we were going to sell all three properties and move to a larger house together up, up at the hill mm -hmm. in uh, Ranch Cucamonga. So, it did not start to get violent 
until the very last day when we were leaving. Even when it knew we were leaving, it was just, you know, doing little things, nothing bad, turning. It liked to turn things backwards. It, that's what it loved to do. Everything you'd see backwards, backwards, or move things from room to room. But like I said, there was nothing threatening. The last day that we were, we put the property on the market and we were moving up to the new house, my mother-in-law was happy because even though there was nothing really bad happening, it really frightened her. She, she didn't feel comfortable at all down there anymore. Neither did my husband. Unfortunately, I found it, I didn't find it amusing. I found it entertaining. Do you, do you know what I mean? Well, yeah, because like, you're intrigued. Like, and... When all of a sudden you, you see things that shouldn't be happening, happening, it's like, wow. And I didn't feel, like I said, I didn't feel like it was evil at the time. The last day it was. The last day that we were leaving, my mother-in-law and I were the last two down there. Uh, we went into her bedroom had one last box for leaving, and we heard a loud explosion in the kitchen. We ran to the kitchen, and it had literally took all the cabinets on the wall and ripped them off the walls, and there was wood all over the floors. While we were there, we heard glass, like exploding glass, and it had blown out all the windows in the bedroom. So that last day when we were leaving, it was, it was showing us how, how upset it was. And it uh, it actually did take it out on on one member of the family. Oh yes, I really I don't really like talking about this. It just it it killed one it killed our dog. I it, I am so sad that we didn't take the dog with us that night. We left it there. We were going to pick it up the next day, and it it was I can't even I can't even picture it because I just can't. But I mean you 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 know that uh, you know you're leaving the dog behind because you want the dog to protect the the, the property and, and the way that the dog is described in the book it seems like she was a great guard dog and yeah. so you want to have her there to make sure that nobody you know people obviously know you're moving and right. you don't want to have anybody break in outside I didn't think we didn't think you know it wasn't in the house like where we thought anything would happen it was out in the yard we thought we'd pick it up the next day but no the entity showed us it was not happy. So as a family, though, you, you probably figure at this point uh, that you're getting away from all this by selling these houses and, and moving to a new property, and that hopefully this will all be left behind you because everything that you ever hear about a haunted house, for the most part, you know, that's the way you'd expect it to go. Right. We thought, like I said, we were moving for two reasons, but for my mother-in-law, the most important one was just getting rid of this situation. Uh, when we moved, we moved about 10 miles away, north from there. Um, to a larger house for the first like two weeks, two or three weeks, I can't remember exactly. It was heaven. Absolutely nothing happened. It was quiet. We thought, all right, whatever it was, it stayed down at the other property. Then like the third week, I think it was, my mother and father-in-law, they lived more up. It was a large house. Upstairs, there was a suite with a bathroom, a bedroom, and a sitting room. And um, that's where they had their bedroom. And the first thing that happened was a picture and the sitting room was turned backwards. Now, we knew as soon as that happened that we were no longer safe, that it had come with us. And uh, at this point, you're still thinking, you know, that it's, it's, it's some sort of a, of a haunting. You're not, nobody's made the, the jump yet to the idea that it could be something demonic, but it's enough to be unnerving and, and, and certainly something that you don't want to have uh, following you to your new property. But was everybody at this point uh, united? I know that uh, your father-in-law had a lot of issue accepting what was going on. Was there, there enough evidence for him at that point? Yeah, at that point, because he, he was the first one to see the picture turned. But what happened next was the most amazing thing. Um, in their bedroom, in their bathroom upstairs, the entity started communicating with us by writing on the mirror in soap. 
And then, literally, right, just communicate that way. The first time he did it, we, we looked, and then, of course, you, you think, well, who's doing this? One of us is doing it. Because mm-hmm. you can't, I couldn't phantom something that I couldn't see writing to me on a mirror. I just, it never, I, I just couldn't accept it at the time. So we did a test. We cleaned the mirror. All four of us went together and stood outside the, the door, and we waited like two or three minutes, opened the door, went back in, and there was writing all over the mirror. So we proved to ourselves, right in front of us, the four of us, that we were not doing it. Something that we couldn't see was doing it. Well, that's uh, that's probably a good place to, to to leave off for this hour because we do have to take a break for the network news. Uh, but when we come back, on, you know what? I, I will ask you one one more question before we go. Uh, mm-hmm. But I really want to get into to the meat of some of what was going on with you uh, coming up following the news. Uh, but when you moved in there, I mean, what was the the mood of the family? I would assume that everybody's happy to be in a larger house and, and happy to leave all this stuff behind. Was there any kind of dysfunction going on within no, the family at that I time? I think everyone was – it was more – it was a little tension because we were waiting for some. you were like waiting for the shoe to drop. Mm-hmm. But as the days progressed and nothing had happened, everybody started to relax, thinking that we had escaped it, but we hadn't. A lot of times, you know, you hear with, especially with demonic cases where, you know, there's already some sort of tension, some sort of dysfunction going on that it just preys upon. Uh, but it sounds like this is more, you know, it's kind of a chicken and egg argument, but it sounds more like, you know, this, it, it was starting to, to have an influence uh, over the family as things went on instead of, instead of already coming in with problems. Yes. All right, well, we will definitely talk about that coming up in the next hour. Uh, the book is called A Deadly Haunting. If you'd like to get it, you can go to the website, adeadlyhaunting.com. It is linked up on SpookySouthCoast.com, right on the front page there, so you can go and check it out. You can pick it up on Amazon, uh, and it's a, a great read. I mean, it, it is, as scary of a story as it is, and to know that it's all true, uh, it's a very uh, entertaining book. It's a very, you know, you'll, you'll be sucked in right from the beginning when you start reading the story, and, and then when you keep it in the back of your mind, how it's all true it just makes it that much harder to sleep at night uh, but uh, you can pick it up on Amazon uh, you can get the paperback and the Kindle version as well so if you want to check that out during the news break feel free to go ahead and go to a deadlyhaunting.com or it's linked up right on spookysouthcoast.com and you can follow the entire story and, and Deborah on Twitter at a deadly haunting on, on Twitter as well. Uh, so again, we are going to take a break for the news. When we come back on the other side, more of our discussion with Deborah Moffitt. Uh, I want to remind everybody two things. You can make that donation to the Frank Sumption uh, Memorial Fund through GoFundMe if you would like to help with his final expenses. And then also we have only seven tickets remaining for our Legend Trips event next Saturday night at Edaville, USA in Carver, Massachusetts. Tickets are just $99. You're going to get dinner. You're going to get a historical presentation and a tour. You're going to get some uh, some presentations from the from the Legend Trips crew, and you'll be able to roam the grounds. We will have a structured investigation of the entire Edaville property, so you want to definitely make sure that if you are someone who wants to be the first to step foot into a location, the first to investigate, you want to get those tickets while you still can because we will be the first to get into Edaville, USA. All right, we'll be back in just a moment after the news with more Spooky South Coast here on WBSM.
Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. And it feels nice to say that. Yes, it does. After weeks of not having a full program. Uh, but we are here all the way until midnight tonight, and we'll get right back into the discussion with our guest, Deborah Moffat, in just a moment. Again, if you want to check out the book, adeadlyhaunting.com, just go to the website. You can find out a lot about what we're talking about from the website. You can also see some of the photos of uh, some of the incidents that we'll be talking about tonight, especially with the communication uh, with the entity via the mirror. And you can see some photo evidence of that as well. Uh, we want to let everybody know, though, if you're new to the program, we have what's called Spooky TV, which we put up on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. If you go to the site, you click on the Spooky TV tab, it will bring you to a variety of options where you can watch the video, and you can also jump in the chat room as well. And our chat room is, is pretty interesting. You can sign in with your Twitter account if you'd like, or you can make up a name for yourself, and then uh, you can comment there and, and talk back and forth with each other. I know that we had some issues earlier in the program. With some of the audio coming out of there, which, you know, happens right. more often than it should. Most of the time when we uh, talk about the demonic. Or just most of the time anyway. I'm just blaming the demonic. That's a good good attempt. Uh, also, you can blame Moniz, because he's not here, too. Yep. So we can we can blame him. It's usually his fault. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but uh, we, do have the, uh, we do have the audio fixed now, and we're hoping that somebody so. can tell us that it's... Sounding good. Uh, but everybody went over to the WBSM.com audio feed or the radio pup app. So <laughs> we're waiting for them to listen to the video. There are a lot of options. To the audio on the video. Which is a good thing. Options, yeah. Right, right. And uh, so there's so many so many ways that you can hear it. And if you miss any part of the show at any point, you can always download the podcast from iTunes. You can also watch the video on YouTube. And we're actually working on – I have to finish editing the audio from the Belanger Backyard Birthday Bash. That's what I'm yep, calling it. Yep. And uh, once I get that all cleaned up, I will upload that as well. So that will show up in your spooky South Coast iTunes feed, and you'll be able to download it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do anything with the video, which is fine. It's just a flickering campfire for two hours. Yeah, pretty much. So yeah. we'll do what we can uh, with, with the audio. And, and, and I know, Matt, you previewed the audio, and it sounded yeah, good to there, you. There's some uh, good conversations going on. We were, we were picking that up with the uh, camera microphones, yeah. so ended up working out. I guess we don't need to bring that whole big setup that we used to bring anymore. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Oh, thank you, everybody who donated to GoFundMe.com slash SpookySouthCoast to make things so much easier for us. We we now have new cameras and new laptop and everything, and it comes out so much better. But every once in a while, we get thrown a curveball with some some buzzing audio. And You know, it's funny because it's everything works perfectly in advance of 10.06. Yes, it does. <laughs> the minute we try to go live, that's when everything goes wrong. Right, including the website crashing. Which, that didn't happen for me tonight, thankfully, but I know it happened for you. I still can't get on. It happened for some other folks. They can get it on their phone, but they can't get it on their web browser. Uh, I don't know. At this point... I'm going to jump on that this week. We need to actually just eventually throw our hands up in the air and say that we're trying to do way more than we actually can. (laughs) Like, we this... What we do with this program has gone beyond our capabilities. We need to start bringing in extra help. If anybody out there is an intern and knows what they're doing <laughs> to help us out, uh, we would appreciate it. All right, well, let's get back into the discussion with our guest tonight, Deborah Moffat. And, uh, again, the book is called A Deadly Haunting. And we were discussing before the news break, Deborah, uh, the atmosphere around the family moving into this new home and, and just the way that things had started to uh, continually progress with this entity that you were dealing with that now you're getting messages written on the bathroom mirror in soap. But you made it pretty clear your feelings toward this entity pretty much right from the start. I was not afraid. For some reason, I don't know why, I was not afraid of the entity. 
Um, I, not that I wouldn't, re, you know, I'm not stupid. I wouldn't say anything disrespectful or anything because it did have the power to do very mean and very horrible things. But I just was not afraid of it. Um, the first thing it said on the mirror was, talk to me. Kind of inviting but, you into, you know, getting you to accept it and, and to welcome it in. And when I remember my father asking it, what should we call you? What, what, what is your name? Who are you? And it said for us to call him Prince. And what was your reaction to that? I mean, that seems like a pretty uh, a pretty strange thing for an entity to call itself. Were you thinking more of like a historical prince, like an actual prince? I, you know what? I didn't know. And at the time, I wasn't familiar with demons and things like that, other than just having movie, seen movies about them. So I didn't even associate this with being a demon. I still thought it was just some type of, you know, like a nasty spirit. So... But, it, well, I was going to say when uh, when when you're dealing with it, though you you said that you weren't afraid. You weren't afraid because you thought that it was something that was formerly human, right? Uh, but then it like it kept progressing, getting nastier and nastier. Uh, at the time, it wanted us to talk to it. We didn't want to talk to it because it was, it was uh, this was taking place upstairs, and when we we wouldn't talk to it, it did things. To the house. Its symbol is a triangle with a tail in the middle of the triangle at the bottom. And it put this symbol all over the house. And I mean, put it by gouging it in the walls, burning it into the walls. It would take, cut pieces of the rug out in the triangle shape. I mean, it, it, it literally, in, the, in the, the time that it was here, destroyed the house. I mean, it was every day we were patching and painting. It was, it just, it would gouge walls, rip things. It, upstairs, my mother and father-in-law lived, uh, like, in the bedroom, off that bedroom. The entity ripped their bed into, it just, like, it looked like it took a knife and just completely ripped the mattress in pieces. And, and it you burned can... a gigantic triangle with a tail over their bed, right next to a picture, I think it was, of Jesus. And you can see photos of this on deadlyhaunting.com and, and in the book as well and, and see what we're talking about. And, you know, it, it's easy to say, I mean, uh, again, I'm just playing, I, I hate to use this phrase, I'm, I feel like an ass here, devil's advocate here, but uh, a lot of folks are listening to this story and, and saying, well, sure, if you come up with this story, you can certainly go and make photographs and put them up on the website to make it look like you know this actually happened. But when you see these photographs, you can tell these are pictures from, from 25 years ago. Right, and I have the negatives. My husband, you know, people would come to the house and they would say, the people that were investigating, start documenting everything that's happening, take pictures. Mm-hmm. So we would take pictures of everything. They would not be able to help us, so we'd have to call someone else to try. They would come and they'd say, oh, no, get rid of all these pictures. You're, you're keeping it here by taking pictures. So we would throw all the pictures away. If I had kept all the pictures we had taken during that time, I would have a 1,000 pictures. Wow. But my husband, he couldn't throw everything away. So he would, he would just, like, grab some pictures and throw them in a box from every set of pictures we had. So that's why he kept those, and that's why they're, like, some from each year. But they're not in any type of order, you know. And thank goodness he did that. Well, when you're having all this stuff, you know, you mentioned bringing people in that couldn't help you. When was the first time that you reached to somebody uh, outside to try to come in and offer some kind of assistance? The first time was a priest. Uh, We asked the priest to come to the house. He was an older gentleman. 
my mother was very religious, so she hoped by him coming, we and actually even before he came, it was very hard to get my mother-in-law to agree to have anybody come to the house to help, because and the only reason she did is because it was the hostility and anger was progressing. So um, she was embarrassed. She felt for some reason she we were actually her because the entity focused on her was uh, being punished for something she had done. She didn't know what. She just couldn't understand it. And then she also thought, well, we can't tell people because people think we're crazy. Mm -hmm. And she was right. It was a time when this stuff wasn't talked about. It wasn't like now where everybody's investigating and people are more open-minded. It was a time when if I said, you know, I've got something writing to me on the mirror, they would say, sure, you're nuts. But so we kind of we had to keep it to ourselves. Also, the, the Mr. Entity wanted to isolate us. And he did this by making it almost impossible to go out with people. Uh, we went to visit my mother-in-law, a friend of my mother-in-law's. And when we left, when we came home on the table was this gentleman's wallet that we were just with. Now, how could we explain to, to them, oh, well, by the way, we, when we get home, we have your wallet. Mm -hmm. He would do, make situations so uncomfortable that we couldn't be with people. So he isolated us. And, and the idea being, of course, that he didn't want you to leave his grasp. Right. And he went with us. If we went, on, if we went somewhere, he'd go with us. We, we couldn't get away from him no matter what we did. So when, when this priest came and he tried to help you, and, and, and obviously he was of no help, he, he didn't even want to step foot into the door. No, he came in in the foyer. He made the sign of the cross. He said, your house is now blessed. I'm leaving. And my mother-in-law tried to, she said, no, you don't you have to go to every room? He said, no, this is good. And then she tried to explain to him what was happening, and he didn't want to hear it. He told her no. And then he looked at me, and he made the sign like, you know, when you make a circle by your ear like they're crazy. He said, women at this age, they go a little crazy. Yeah. And he left, ran to his car, and zoomed away, and we never heard from him again. And and here's somebody who was supposed to, uh, at least you're thinking of the time, is, you know, this is kind of the, the last line of defense that we have here is somebody from right. the clergy. And, and uh, to just leave you stranded like that and abandoned is, I can imagine that... Uh, it, well, it had it had to be devastating to my mother-in-law because she she had she had held him you know a priest in such high esteem that she couldn't believe that he just abandoned us. And it must go against everything that was within you know the priest's teaching as well. You know everything that he learned and everything he knew about needing mm -hmm. to help people. You know it just shows how strong that this felt to him that right, he, that he had. Just of, frightened, you could see it. Mm -hmm. And and for a good reason. This this entity did things that were were absolutely amazing. Uh, one time. We were we were in the living room and we were watching television. and I heard water running, and I got up and I saw there was, we were being flooded. And I went to we all got up and tried to find out where the water was coming from. And on the stairs from upstairs coming down the stairs was like a waterfall, like if you you know like on the side of a hill, the waterfall. It was just coming down like a waterfall. And it was I always remember because I counted what step it was the third step down from the top. And my father-in-law thought, oh, a pipe has burst. So he climbed up the side to try to, there was no pipe. And I remember going into the bathroom. At this time, my mother and father-in-law had moved from upstairs. And my husband and my new child and my mother and father-in-law, we all lived together in the master suite at the bottom. That's, that's where we all slept. That's where we all lived. So I remember, and Mr. Entity, because he couldn't communicate upstairs, he owned the upstairs at that time. He controlled the upstairs. That was his property. 
he moved to the downstairs bathroom, the guest bathroom, to communicate. And I remember I ran in there and I said, Mr. Entity, stop it. You have to stop it. And as soon as I said that, the water stopped, just like someone turned a knob. But that was kind of the only time that you could get him to stop anything. Right. So he was... So he was, you know, he just liked to torment us. He he became in control because, you know, and one of the things I found that you could kind of lessen what he did, you know, destroying the house was by communicating with him. And some people would say, they have asked me, well, why did you communicate with him? Well, he, this was years. This was this wasn't weeks or months. This was years after trying for people to help us, and no one could help us. Mm-hmm. He was he was literally. He focused most of the negativity on my mother-in-law. He would do things like put knives under chairs so if she went to sit down, she'd sit on a knife. Or when she tried to go to bed at night, she put he'd put pill, uh, knives in the pillow. We used to have to, before she sat down, we used to have to inspect everything. He it started putting crushed aspirin in her food because she was allergic to aspirin. She went to the emergency room three times, swelled up like a balloon because of hidden aspirin in her food. I mean, it, it it didn't want to kill her. It wanted her to be to the point where she'd want to kill herself. Mm-hmm. It took away her clothes. She didn't. If it, she went to the closet to get something to wear, it had cut it up or had thrown bleach on it and bleached it. So it it just almost it wouldn't let her have a license. Her wallet it would take. So it it just it demoralized her. It got to the point where you know, I thought this is this is eventually going to kill her. And, and that's when that's when I confronted the entity. This is not a month or two after it was here. This was a year or so after it was here. And I knew no one was helping us. No one could get rid of it. Well, and so with I, with the, the religious aspect now no longer on the table, because, you know, the, the one priest that you thought you could get to come and help you didn't want to seem to uh, even step foot in the door and, and, and try and help you. You ended up turning to the to the paranormal world and and of right. course like you said it's not like it is today when you could just turn on cable and learn a little bit about it you know this is something that you had to kind of navigate through not really knowing all that much at all right we would look in the newspaper for psychic fairs go to them talk to people try to say do you know anyone who can help us we're very lucky we found a gentleman named brian hurst who is a very respected uh, psychic in the area in Los Angeles, he came to the house to try to help us. Wonderful man. Um, he couldn't. He couldn't. He wouldn't go into a trance in the house. But he was too frightened. He just said whatever was here was very, very evil and very old. Uh, when he went home that night, everything in his refrigerator was spoiled. He had to throw everything away. He said, "I can't help you, but I'll try to find someone who can." He got in touch with a friend of his, a lady who, who worked for this this kind of problem, and she got a group together and they went to dinner. And at dinner, they looked, and Mr. Entity had taken all the knives from the table and put them in a glass of water in the middle of the table. And she said, if this, this can do that, I'm not getting involved. So she wouldn't get involved. So, But we kept looking. We went to the university, I think it was UCLA, Dr. Thelma Moss. Uh, she couldn't come out and help us at the time, but she sent an associate of her, Carrie Gaynor. He came out to investigate. Uh, everyone came out to investigate. There was never really any answers, and they never could get rid of it. Uh, one lady that came was Dr. Evelyn Paglini. She was she was the type of person when she walked in the house, you thought if anyone could get rid of this, Dr. Paglini would get rid of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entity absolutely hated her. 
uh, he liked one, one of the things the entity loved to do was critique everybody that came to the house. This 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 isn't like an uh, a entity that you you see in movies. This horrible thing that that just roams around doing things. This this had a, a, an intelligence to it and a sense of humor. It made jokes. It would communicate. It would like to critique people that came to the house. Well, this one has no power. I, this one is nothing. Throw a net over this one. Mm-hmm. Things like that. It would say. So it was. It was very strange. And, and then, it, but Evelyn Pagliani, he absolutely hated Dr. Pagliani. He called her filthy names. And the entity also liked to do different types of magical symbols. Symbols. I don't know if you call them magical symbols, but just symbols that had to do with magic. He'd do those all over the mirrors in the house, also. And Dr. Pagliani, well, I remember writing. She had put on the the mirror. She was communicating with it that way, and she wrote well, on the bottom of this one thing. She wrote, uh, "God protects us," and Mr. Entity crossed off God and put, "Prince protects us." Hmm. Letting you know that he was the one that was calling the shots. Right. So again, and I want to get into a little bit about uh, who came in over the course of the, these events because it literally is like an all-star roster of, mm-hmm. uh, of paranormal investigators who have come in and, and tried to help you deal with this entity over this time, but who was the first one to throw around the idea that it was something demonic? Who was the first one to, to use the D word? The very first one that I can remember was uh, um, Mrs. Warren. When, Ed when Ed and Lorraine Warren. Warren came? They came to the house to help us. They were very nice people, especially Ed Warren. He was just, he was a, I just liked him so much. He was so personable. Um, they came, when she came in, he went, we, we all sat at the table together. She went and went around the house, and she came back and said, this is one of the oldest, uh, strongest evil demons I've ever come in contact with. And was and she, was she that, the one that... From that point on, that's when I started thinking, oh, then this is a demon. Because up until then, demon never crossed my mind. Right. Well, I mean, you'd have to really be at your wit's end to to even think that. You know, you're hoping that it would never be something to that extent. Right. Uh, Well, so you have now the idea that this could be something of the demonic. When did it first start to to physically manifest? Because the first story of its uh, the story of its first manifestation, uh, it just sounds like something out of out of a horror movie. Now, the first time I I saw it, and actually when I saw it, it wasn't itself manifesting. It used some material in the attic to manifest to show itself. We had uh, shamans come to the house, uh, a a lady and a gentleman, and I went with them upstairs. Like I said, Mr. Entity, from the steps up, that was his domain. Mm -hmm. You could could start going up the steps and you could feel it like a blanket coming over you. That was his up there. That's where he lived. Um, up on the uh, top of the stairs, if you went, if you go to the uh, right, there's a door that leads into the attic, and that's where he liked to stay most of the time. Uh, the, the Indians came; they were shamans, very nice people. Uh, they <clears throat> had incense with feathers, and they were doing a ritual. And they said to me, because I was with them, they asked me to come up with them. I went up with them. They said to me, he's in the attic, and we're going to try to force him out. So they opened that door, and I was standing right with them watching everything. And they took the, the incense with their feathers, and they blew it into the room. And they would blow the incense smoke in, and a second later, it would like be blown out like somebody was blowing it out from the other side. <laughs> and they did this like two or three times, and finally they said, well, we have to go in. So we all we went into the room. I stayed in the doorway right there. I didn't go in the room. I stayed right in the doorway watching. And he did some type of ritual that demanded that it show itself. 
And as I was standing there watching, the, the inside of the, the attic had like pink... Um, insulation? Insulation, thank you. Pink insulation on the walls and on the ceiling. And the insulation came off, slowly came down on the side of the wall, and formed into this huge head. I mean, it was like five-foot head. And all it was was the head. And it, was, it wasn't grotesque-looking. It was a male with a, a very strong, big jaw, a very big nose. And on the side of its head where the ear should be was a horn that made a circle and then came up and went over the top of the head. Because I could only see the side view of it. Mm-hmm. And that stayed there probably for five, ten seconds, and then slowly dissipated and fell to the ground. So, so that was a... it showed itself to me. And you've you've got the folks coming in, and, and they're telling you that they think that it's demonic. It's certainly showing showing some signs of of having a, a demonic side to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the communication that you're having with it, uh, it's it's not exactly playing nice either. And it, it seems like as this is slowly starting to build up, you know, we we talk about the different stages of a demonic experience and it seems like uh, these things are definitely starting to progress i can imagine that that's taking quite a toll on the family oh yes it my husband got to the point he barely ever left and he had a bad heart to begin with he barely ever left the bedroom if he had to go into another room he couldn't go by himself i had to go with him Uh, my mother-in-law stayed mostly in the bedroom if we did anything it was always with the four of us would go watch tv together or do something uh you became to get, whether you wanted to be or not, you became closer. Except my father-in-law. He was with us physically, but not mentally. He was very aloof. He was very, it's like it didn't matter to him one way or another. I mean, it was tormenting his wife, beating her down, and yet he didn't really care. And when the, when the Warrens came, they did a rite of provocation one evening. And I remember we, uh, I was in the room, my husband, my father-in-law, Ed and Lorraine Warren, and a gentleman they had who was taping this, videotaping it. And when he did the rite of provocation, I evidently, it went in, the demon used my father-in-law, and it went into my father-in-law. And my father-in-law changed. And I don't mean if you looked at him, he looked like a different person, but his mannerisms changed the way he held himself. He kind of stooped over, pulled one arm up, dragged one leg. And I remember he, his head was bent. I remember he got up and in a different voice went over to my uh, Ed Warren and looked at him. And Ed Warren took a little piece of, of wood and he said, he held it up to my father and he said, this is, he told us that he had a, a relic. He said, this is a piece of the cross. He said, I have this. You cannot harm me. And I remember my father-in-law looking at him and looking at the piece of cross and said, I'm going to bite your hand off and chew your hand in that cross up and spit it in your face. Wow. So this is uh, definitely not normal behavior for your father-in-law. No. I, I would think. And, uh, no. and 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 as, as caustic as, as the situation might have been, uh, you know, and with everything going on, you still you don't want to see your own family start to be essentially possessed by this thing. No, no. It was... It was really, it was very hard and very tiring. Watching this slowly, just at my mother-in-law constantly, and watching her getting, actually getting physically ill, um, it didn't want to kill her. It, it wanted her to commit suicide, but it did want my father-in-law to kill her. That's, 
And I do want to get into some of that in a little bit because that's kind of the whole true uh, heart of the story here is is, is that dynamic. But uh, we are talking with Deborah Moffat. If you have any questions, you can give us a call, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. You can also email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com or hit us up on Twitter at SpookySC, or you can submit your question in the chat room at SpookyTV at SpookySouthCoast.com. And we did have a question here in the chat room. Uh, is anybody still researching this case now? You said that you haven't had any encounters with this entity uh, in 25 years, but now that you've been coming out with the book and, and talking about it publicly, have you heard of other folks that may be uh, still plagued by the same demon? Actually, you know, I, I would like to hear if anybody especially has any knowledge of the triangle with that tail. Uh, we have a person named Todd Hendrickson, who's an investigator, a researcher, who's researching the, the, the signs and the symbols that were put in the house. So he's looking into things right now. And I know that at some point, I forget exactly which uh, person that it was that came in, but somebody was actually able to identify which demon you were actually dealing with. Right. Well, this was a man named Reverend David, and we found him in Carson. Someone told us about him, and we went to He had a little shop. And we went in the front, and we we told him the sign. We showed him a picture of it, and he said, wait a minute. He went in the back, and he brought out a book. I mean, it was a real thick, and it was old, old book. He turned the pages. They would look crumbly. And he took us. He said, I've seen this sign before. And he took us into the, the, the room to show us the book, and he opened it up to this one spot, and it showed the triangle with the tail. And it said, he said it was the demon of destruction. And that's all he could tell us about it. Hmm. But that was the only time anyone has ever even shown us that symbol. And and later on, I know that somebody uh, was able to identify it as being the demon Baal, which... Actually, what happened was the entity, Mr. Entity, li- like I said, liked to do these symbols on the mirror also. He did a, a wheel, like a wheel, spoked wheel, mm-hmm. and it had the spokes in it. And on each of the spokes, it had a name. And I, I actually, I think one of the pictures is, is uh, in the book. It showed it. Um there was also names in each corner of the mirror, and then at the bottom of the the the, the wheel was B A A L. So he wrote that himself. Hmm. Well, now is is normally you hear with demonic cases once the demon is identified right. and you know who it is, it's supposed to make it easier to deal with it and to vanquish it. But it, it seems like it had the opposite effect uh, with your family in this situation. It seems like once you knew who it was, it, it was only throwing it up in your face even more how strong it was. Uh, yeah, what could we do? I mean, we, we've had every help we could get. And the reason why supposedly we couldn't get rid of this was because one of us in the house was giving it permission to stay. And I remember Dr. Paglini said to us, if someone in your house gives it permission to stay, no matter who comes, no matter what you say, it does not have to leave. It has permission to be there. And she said one of us was giving it permission to be here. And uh, that's because of this connection. I mean, we should probably take a step back, at least from the way that the story is told in the book. Uh-huh. It seems like uh, your your mother-in-law, Lee, and your father-in-law, Bill, they did have some issues. Uh, yeah, they se- did. Uh, their whole married life, he was... He cheated on her. She would always take him back. But he was not a very nice person. Mm-hmm. I mean, he tr- he treated me nice. I have to say that he was very nice to me. But he was not nice to my mother-in-law or my husband, really. He, w- he was rather a cruel man. 
like I said, when these things were happening, he showed no remorse, no sympathy towards her. It was like, well, it's happening, so what? And, he, and, and he it seemed, was absolutely destroying her. He seemed pretty upfront about the fact that, you know, he was with her because she actually had the money in the family. Right, that's true. What? When he came out to California, he had nothing. Her family was well off, and he kind of latched on, and that's, well, I think that was the only reason he was with her. And, uh, you know, you're trying to, uh, as as this uh, as this severe haunting continues and you realize that, uh, that Bill Sr. is at the center of it, you're trying to convince Lee that she needs to get him out of the house, that that's the only way you can be free. And, and she just seems to be uh, against that idea because of her own, you know, her own Catholic upbringing. Right. She did not believe in divorce. She just didn't believe in divorce. So I would say to her, well, you don't have to divorce him, but... Unless we get him out of the house and away from you and away from us in the house, we're never going to get rid of this entity. And she just, it took the longest time before she would agree to it. And as this is going on, as you're trying to figure this out and as you're trying to to prove to Bill Sr. and to your mother-in-law and to everybody about what's actually going on, you're bringing in, again, We I, I call it kind of an all-star roster of investigators. Uh, you brought in, as you mentioned, Ed and Lorraine Warren. You brought in Lloyd Auerbach. You brought right. in Dr. Evelyn Paglini. These are folks that are all coming in, uh, and, and it's coming out of your own pocket to bring these people from wherever right. they are A to A lot of them n- never charged, though. They were, everything was free. They just come out. They just came. You didn't even have to fly them out or put them up in a well, hotel. A lot anywhere. of them were right here in California. The Warrens, we did have to pay for their for their airplane tickets mm-hmm. and their hotel when they were here. But they didn't charge for doing anything. Well, yeah, luckily, you know, Lloyd is is relatively close by. Yeah. And, and uh, but one person that you did try to get involved in, and, and this is this story, I thought was kind of interesting because uh, we've discussed a lot in the past. Of course, Scott Rogo, D. Scott Rogo, and his work, uh, his landmark book, uh, Phone Calls from the Dead, and his work in that field. And you had actually tried to reach out to Scott Rogo for right. help. Right. I had called Scott Rogo. He didn't answer, but I left a message on his machine. I explained to him that we needed help, and I asked him if he could call me back so we could just discuss it. And I remember Mr. Entity wrote on the mirror, Scott Rogo is dead. And I remember saying, what do you mean he's dead? And the first thing that came to my mind was, oh, oh goodness, I hope the entity didn't hurt him. And he said, no. He, when I say he, he told me, I'm meaning he's writing this to me. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote he was murdered. And this was before it was on the news. We didn't even know it had happened. And I think it was later that night or the next day it was on the news that he had been murdered. And the entity told me two gentlemen killed him and told me that he was murdered. So I knew that before it was even on TV. And uh, you'd hate to think that this entity did have any kind of a role in that. That's, that's what I thought. The first thing you think is, oh, goodness, did he think this gentleman could help us so he hurt him? It seemed like everybody that came through the doors that could have helped, uh, it found some sort of way to either uh, scare them off or to discredit them to you guys. But there there was some folks who did keep in, in relative contact with you uh, over the right. years. Right. One of them was Brian Hurst. Brian stayed a friend through the whole situation. He he was such a good man. He even offered my, my mother-in-law, Lee, to come and stay with him and his, his, his companion so that, you know, to get away from this. I mean, that's how nice he was. He was going to put himself in danger to try to help her. He was a, he was a great, he's a great man. So as you're trying to, to find these answers and find these solutions, at some point you finally do get the backstory of what's actually going on here. Right. And, and uh, after my, my son was born, and 
I, many times people would come. No one could help us. It got to the point where I knew my mother-in-law was going to die if something didn't, didn't happen. And I had to protect my husband, and I had to protect my child. Truthfully, my father-in-law, I didn't feel any need to take care of. I mean, I know that sounds doesn't sound nice, but I just didn't. But it seems like he was he giving himself up, himself. though. He was he was giving himself into this, and if that's the case, you really can't help somebody that, that's that's giving themselves up willingly. Right. So I got to the point where I just could I had to protect them. So I went into to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and talked to him. I said, "Mr. Entity, I'm going to show you respect, and you're going to show me respect." You're not going to touch my child, you're not going to touch my husband, and you're not going to hurt Lee. And that's the way it's going to be. And I left, and I came back. And he wrote, I will not touch the child, I will not hurt your husband, but Lee belongs to me. And then he went and explained the story to me that Lee had been promised to him in a uh, ritual, in a sacrifice, many, many years ago. And it never came to fruition. She was never, she never died in the sacrifice. So even though she didn't die then, he felt that she still belonged to him, and he was coming to claim her. And it got even deeper with that when it seemed like there was a, a past life connection for right. a lot of the people who were involved with this with this story. He told me that my father-in-law was one of this all. She said this all conspired in a monastery, and that my father-in-law. Uh, was one of the monks that practiced Satanism and was going to sacrifice my mother-in-law. So he was one of the ones that had promised her to him. And one of the people who had come in to help was actually involved as well. Right, Reverend David. He said he knew Reverend David from the from the monastery. He even, he even gave us their names. I'm trying to remember what the name. Uh, oh, uh, Reverend David's name was Henri, and my father-in-law's name was Andre. He gave us the names. He told us the name of the monastery where, where this all took place. And uh, you know, this, there's, there's this earthly connection amongst them, uh, but it seems like whoever this centralized figure was, whoever was the, uh, whoever was the, the person known as Prince, uh, was definitely under the influence of some sort of demonic entity back in the 1600s. Well, I've got, I got the feeling that when he said he was in the monastery, that he didn't mean he was there physically. Okay. I, I interpreted it that he was his presence was there, and the, the people that he controlled were these people that practiced Satanism. I didn't get the feeling that he was an uh, actual person. So he was never a human? No, I just thought it was his influence that he was there in the monastery controlling things. Because I was wondering as a, you know, if that was the case, if, if this wasn't the case of a, of a human spirit that was still being controlled demonically. I and didn't. It could be, but I didn't interpret it that way. Hmm. When he, when he, the way he talked to me, it gave me the feeling that he was in control, that these people like did things for him and because of him, so, like sacrificing to him. So I don't think he was ever a human. Well, now you get to the point where where Bill Senior is becomes aware of this, mm -hmm. uh, and and is making overt gestures toward uh, harming your mother in law. And now right. your daily existence and your husband's daily existence is all about keeping Lee alive. Right. Not only did we have to keep her safe from it, something we couldn't see, but we had to keep her safe from my father in law. And that's it, it was it was uh, it was a horrible time. 
That's going to be heartbreaking for your husband who has to, you know, who has to uh, essentially turn his back on his father to, to protect it his was. mother. It was, it was really, it was hard. And he, he also, he was so frightened of everything that was going on. It was just a, com- a very confusing time, too, because you didn't know really what to believe. I mean, the entity told us things. Was it the truth? You don't know mm-hmm. what was true and what wasn't true. But my father-in-law then started to go into the bathroom. Now, at this time... I was the one that did the communicating because my mother-in-law was too frightened. My husband wouldn't get near the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And so I was the one that did the communicating. And the reason why I would communicate with him, because if I communicated him with him and have him use his energy communicating, he stopped doing so much of the damage. It was like people would say, well, why are you communicating with him? You shouldn't be talking to him. But they didn't understand. We had to, we had to survive. We had to exist. Mm-hmm. So I had to make a trade-off. I had to communicate with him to keep everybody okay. You were dealing with a petulant child who, if he didn't get attention, he'd throw a tantrum. So if you right. gave him the attention, like, you'd you avoid do, the tantrum. And he was in control. Uh, if, we, if we wanted to go somewhere in the car, if, we did, if I didn't go and ask him, please don't break everything in the car so we can use it, he would destroy the car so we could, he would break the mirrors so we couldn't use the car. I'd have to say to him, no, we have to go somewhere. My father-in-law has to go to the, the doctor. Please don't break the mirrors today so we can. And he'd say, okay, for you, I won't break the mirrors, but tomorrow I'm going to break the windshield. It was a thing. He was in control, and he, he showed us that. He showed us that I'm the, the boss here, and you're going to do what I say, or there's going to be hell to pay. Literally. And so, uh, Like sorry, I said, uh, I made that, so he told us the whole story about that. So then my father's father-in-law started communicating with him, going into the bathroom, kind of like trying to have not everybody see him. And after he would go in, he'd go back, and then the mirror would be clean. Now, when I went in, this entity would write from morning till night. It wasn't just once a, once in a while. It was every day from morning to night he would communicate. So when I'd go in and the mirror would be freshly washed, I knew something was going on. And the entity told me, he said, oh, your, your father-in-law is talking to me, and then he cleans the mirror because he doesn't want you to know what we're saying. So he was in cahoots with the entity. Oh, one night... We were, like I said, we were all sleeping in the same bedroom together, and my father-in-law kind of yelps in the middle of the night and jumps out of bed. We all got up to see what was wrong. And in the bed with him that had woken him up was a spearhead, and the spearhead was about 12 inches long, made of handmade metal, kind of kind of elaborate with X's on it, and it was it was you could see that it was handmade, and the entity had apported it, and the entity wrote that he wanted my father-in-law to perform a blood ritual using my mother-in-law's blood. So I took control. I took the, the, the spearhead. I just took it away, and I, I put it away, and I told the entity, you're not going to get a blood ritual. You're not going to get blood. And it got so upset that it blew out all the windows in the top floor. Wow. And uh, I'm actually uh, I'm showing everybody in the studio a picture of the spearhead. Matt, I don't know if you can bring it up on Spooky TV. Yep, you got it all set. He's he's way ahead of me. Uh, but when you look at that, I mean, that does not look like something that you would uh, you would just find laying around the house. I mean, that, no, that we, had to come. No, we took it to the museum, Natural History Museum in, in Los Angeles. Uh, we talked to a gentleman, a very nice gentleman, and they brought another gentleman out also. Uh, they identified it as being from the Belgian Congo area, over 200 years old. And they could see by the way it was sharpened that it wasn't for hunting, it wasn't for warfare, it was a ritual tool. So it was done for magic rituals. 
and the entity insisted that the blood had to be get, gotten with this, this spearhead. The entity told me things that could be done with a spearhead with magical rituals that, that are unbelievable. So I took control of it, put it away, and I, I, I have it to this day. I have it. You no still have it now? It, no one, I, I showed it when, it when things were starting to happen. I decided to start showing it because I had, hit it, had it hidden. And out of five people that I showed it to, believe it or not, three of them wanted to give it blood. Wow. They actually wanted to cut themselves with it and give it blood. So I don't show it to anybody anymore. I put it back away. Yeah, that's probably a good idea then. Uh, I just, uh, I mean, I can't believe that uh, you, oh, I mean, I guess if you feel like you're not under any kind of influence anymore and that it's not going to bother you anymore, it'd be okay to have it. Believe but... it or not, I knew if I had that, it couldn't be touched. Okay, so it's, it's kind of like you're the protector. You're, right. You have it for I know safekeeping. Nobody, nobody can use it, and the entity won't. is not going to get bothered. It's put away. Although... Whoever he might have apported it from before you had it might have felt the same way as well. Maybe. You don't know. Yeah. See, that's one thing about things like this that happen. There's all, you, all you get is questions, never answers. Right. And you can never really feel like you are, are over it. You know, we say a lot of times that when you deal with these cases, uh, you know, a lot of folks... They're plagued by it for so long, and it's part of their lives for so long that when they... When the, it finally ends and it comes to an end, there's a, a sense of loss. There's a sense of, of uh, almost like of mourning of having to not be in that situation anymore. You know, that's, that is true in a way. I understand what you mean. Because when the entity did leave, and it did leave, and the last thing it said was, goodbye, my family, and it left. And, you know, for like a year after that, even though... I knew it was gone. I would still look in the bathroom on the mirror. It was like you'd expect it, you know, even though you didn't want it to happen. It was like part of your life that had been there for so long, every single day doing that. And you just you expected it to happen. So there was a part that was, you know, there was an emptiness there. Yeah, you don't want it to happen anymore, but there's probably some small, small part of you that when you open that bathroom door and look in the mirror, you're, you're slightly, slightly hoping that you'll see some sort of message. Yeah I, understand, yeah, I understand what you mean because it was so much a part of your life. And not only that, like I mean, almost brainwashed into this routine. It's something that takes you out of the ordinary and, and shows you that there is a world that is extraordinary out there. Oh, it did. It, once you go through something like this, you're never the same. You never look at anything the same. And everybody that 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 survived this, and uh, you know, when you when you read the book, you can see how it all kind of came to a head uh, and what ended up happening. But every after this is all over, uh, and everybody is is coming out of this. Nobody felt the need to to talk about it. Nobody felt the need to go to counseling to to come to grips come to grips with this. There were there were three of us left at the time when it left. My father in law had left. Uh, my mother in law. We decided because she was she was still petrified that this would come back. We would never talk about it if we because we were afraid. She was mostly afraid. If we talked about it, it would draw it back. So we didn't even talk about it among ourselves. It was like from that time on, it was gone. And as if it never happened, even as though as if it never happened in the back. But for like three years after that, she she couldn't go back upstairs. She she stayed another year in the bedroom with us. She couldn't she couldn't sleep alone. And then she moved to the bedroom right next door because she couldn't be be a, a far from us. So and my husband, till the day he died, slept with a nightlight and wouldn't go out in the kitchen alone. So it scarred us. We were scarred. Right. I mean, I can imagine you could never you know look in the bathroom mirror. Uh, right. again. To the 
this, and, and even to this day, I have dreams, especially after bringing this up in the book, of, of going into rooms and, and picturing writings all over the walls and the ceilings. I still have dreams like that all the time. Hmm. Well, if anybody has any questions for our guest, Deborah Moffat, the number is 508-996-0500-877-996-1420 to call in toll-free. We do have a, a call on the line here, so we'll take that call. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Deborah Moffat. Good evening. What a story. Do you have a question? Yeah. Um, Jim, if you ever encountered this kind of experience, how would you handle it? Uh, I would uh, immediately, uh, in, in terms of happening to me personally or as an investigator? Investigator. As an investigator, I would uh, I would walk away and I would find somebody who is a lot more qualified to deal with something uh, to this extent than I am. This this goes beyond my area of, um, but beyond my comfort zone of things that I would be willing to deal with. I would think so, yeah. And, and why hasn't this particular story ever been made into a movie? Well, the book just came out in April. I mean, it's April. new. It just okay. came out. So. And, and you were, you know, holding back on, on telling the story yeah, uh, for all those April, years. No one knew about it but Joey and, like, two close friends. So, so it's been a secret. Has there been any discussion of a film? You know what? It just it just came out. I really haven't uh, gone well, that route. I just want want people to know that this thing, things like this can really happen. Would you I be comfortable to understand that? Would you be comfortable if it got to that point? Because now, you know, now you're sharing the story in a different way. And you know that when, you know, the films come out, they're based on a true story and they take on kind of a life of their own. Would you be afraid to present this story in that format? You know what? I'd have to think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, fair enough. All right. Well, thank you very much for the call. Oh, well, can I ask what made it all end? Sure. Sure. What happened was we had a person that was living with us on and off. He was an investigator, and he was a little unbalanced to begin with. He found this entity so powerful, and his, he found his life so uncomfortable that he actually offered the entity to go with him. He told the entity, "If you, I'm, I'm leaving for England. Um, if you'd like to come with me, you can come with me and leave this family. And I remember I went to the mirror and I said, Mr. Entity, go with him. You're not, we're not going to feed you. You know, my father-in-law's gone. There's no hate. There's no animosity here. We're, we love each other. I'm not going to let you hurt my mother-in-law. So you might as well go. And he wrote, "I do not want to go." And he said, "I will not." I remember, I remember this because it struck me so strange. He said he wasn't going to go with this gentleman because he refused to work with an inferior being. Well, that but must- eventually he did go with him. And when he left, like I said, the last thing he said was, goodbye, my family. And that was 25 years ago, and we've, nothing, not a thing has happened since then. And, and that was Terry that he left with? Yes. Did that's you ever not he- the real name, but that's right. who we went with. Did you ever hear anything further from, from him? Yes, that gentleman actually was a friend. I, I have contacted him. We've Not too long ago we talked. We're in contact. He's not the same person. At the time, he wasn't stable. But now he's, he's more into uh, drinking uh, he does a lot of uh, work online of magical spells and, and things like strange things that he wasn't into before. I don't think the entity is still with him because I don't think the entity li- the entity didn't like him and thought he was inferior. But you haven't so discussed. He stayed with him. You haven't discussed the entity with him at all. I don't think so. All right. Well, thank you very much for the call. Thank you. And you have a great night. You too. Good night. 
And if anybody else has any questions, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. There is a question in the chat room. Uh, somebody wants to know, you had mentioned showing the spear to some other people. Uh, they want to know if the ones that you showed it to who wanted to feed it, did they have anything in common? Uh, and what about the ones that you showed it to that didn't? Was there any kind of uh, correlation between the, the folks that you showed it to that wanted to you feed know, it? You know, they were a diversified lot. I mean, uh, two, of the, two of the ones that wanted to give it blood were female. Um, uh, one was male. One, did, one person wouldn't come near it. They'd look at it from afar, but they wouldn't come near it. One looked at it and touched it and everything and said he didn't like it, but he didn't see anything spectacular about the feeling he got from it. So there was everybody had like a little different feelings. This, this person was particularly wondering if that maybe uh, some were able to resist its power while others were just tempted by it. You know, I don't know. It could be. It could be. I think that's normal anyways. Um, I'd love to know... How did you feel about the paranormal before all of this started? Before this started, like I said, to me it was entertainment. I enjoyed monster movies and scary movies and scary books. Uh, but I never, I was open-minded. I never thought it can't be, but I didn't know it was. Like I said, I was the type, show me and I'll believe it. It's very interesting. Um, what did you? Be- what do you believe actually happened to the entity now? I, I don't know what happened to the Mr. Entity. I think he left when he left with the gentleman, but I think he either went back to where he was should be or he went someplace else to torment more people. Do you have any curiosity of ever having that conversation with Terry? I did. I talked to him. Okay. And he's, he's, he doesn't believe it's with him anymore. When, it first, when he left, it did go with him. He told me that it used to put his, the symbol on his apartment, mm-hmm. so he knew it was there for a while. But... He said he thought it left after a while being with him. I, it didn't like this person. It considered him an inferior being. It didn't want to be with him. But it did go with him, so. I think you are going to hear from, from somebody. And now that you're out discussing this case, somebody's going to reach out to you and let you know. And and, ho- and probably privately. It's probably not going to be. Because, you know, you're going to have a lot of folks that are going to say, oh, I dealt with that same entity. And, you know, that are going to try right. to claim that they did uh, just to try to get attention. But you're going to hear from someone privately under the radar who's saying, listen, I think I'm dealing with exactly the same thing. Because I- I'm, I'm sure that it's plaguing someone else now. And, and, and you telling the story will hopefully show them that there is a way to get, get out of that situation. Right. And uh- not keep it to yourself and don't become isolated. That's the biggest thing. Don't become isolated. Don't let it isolate you. Yeah, it it usually does attach itself to one person in particular, um, or at least in my experience. And they don't usually just disappear and go back to where they come from. They like being here and like the controlling aspect. So mm-hmm. I won't be surprised if you do hear from someone. I, I mean, I would be interested to see if it, what, what's going on. Yeah. Let's, let's hope not, but uh, it's possible. Right. We only have about two minutes remaining in the program, but we do have a call on the line, so let's try and take that very quickly. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Deborah Moffat. Hello, you're Hello. on the air. Hi, do you have a question? Yes. Um, you mentioned a while back, I've been listening very intently, um, the monastery that you identified have you ever gone to that monastery? Do you know, it was supposedly back in the 1600s, he gave us the name of it. Um, I tried looking it up, and there seems to be many of them. He didn't give us the location other than it was in France. So I can't tell you exactly where it is or how I could actually go there. He well, just gave us a name. Like, I think it was the uh, Holy Sacred Heart. I I wrote it down. I know what it is because I have a picture of it on the mirror where he wrote it. 
because because that that seems like a, a connection. And if if it's to be true that your father-in-law was to sacrifice um, your mother-in-law, that that would have been a place to try to confront this or, or finally come ahead. But uh, very, um, I'm awe-inspired by listening to this. Um, it's it's been crazy. Uh, well, we we've only scratched the surface of it. I mean, you really need to check out the entire book to get right. the whole story. I absolutely will. Um, you remember a couple of years ago when I called you about the situation in the house I lived in, mm-hmm. where one yep. of my friends had passed away, and even though I was going through a lot of horrible things in my life, I actually felt safe. So I I definitely understand um, that that not a friendship you had with it, but you it respected you. Right. All right, well, thank you very much for the call. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great night. And, uh, of course, if anybody does want to pick up the book, again, it's called A Deadly Haunting. You can get it from the website, adeadlyhaunting.com, which is also linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. I, I read in the back of the book, Deborah, that you're working with uh, with your daughter on putting together uh, a book of more of the photos of, uh, related to right, this case. Right. I have like 300, 250 photos uh, that showed the different writings on the mirror and different things it did. It used to love especially to break religious objects, pulling the heads off and breaking off the left arm. So it used to do, and all the destruction it did. So I have I have those, and I have the negatives. One, The only bad part is this was back 25 years ago. So when I took pictures, sometimes there's glare, a little bit of a glare. Not like now if you had a digital camera, you could see the picture and know you had to retake it. So some of the pictures have little glares on them. That's the only bad thing. Well, it might have not necessarily been that either. It could have been from the force of what you were dealing with. Oh, I never thought of that. Kind of imprinting itself on the film. Oh. Uh, you know what? I'm going to look at the pictures in a different light now. Well, I would say definitely try to get them in the hands of a, a photographic expert. And we, we have a few that we know that we deal with uh, that if you wanted to have them checked out, they can kind of analyze them and let you know what might have exactly been causing uh, some of the makeup of some of those anomalies. So, Oh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. very interesting. I would really would appreciate that. Not a problem at all. Well, thank you very much for joining us and for sharing your story with us and with the world. And, and I'm sorry that you had to take 25 years to do so, that you had to go through this, this six years of hell. And, and then to have to wait so long to be able to tell the story. But uh, we're glad that you were able to. And thank you so much for allowing me to tell my story. Thank you. All right. Have a great night. Good night. And that does it for this week's show. Uh, we will be back in two weeks when our guest will be Bob Ethier to talk about his book, Angels to Aliens. And I just missed the legal ID, so I'm going to run that. And uh, <laughs> we'll talk to you next time. Until then, we want you all to stay spooktacular.